Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to your next episode of Canine's Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, and on today's episode, I am switching it up. We, of course, typically you know delve into the worlds of narcotics or explosives or your typical things and then sport work. And in recent times, I've been trying to get out and uh, through my past experiences um, in different detection dog programs, get out here now and share all different types of detection with everybody. So I wanted to start with something that's probably another big field, which is human remains detection. And many of you probably remember I made a post on Facebook asking for input and and advice from people of who you guys wanted to hear from. And this next guest comes straight from that list. Um, our, Our vast, vast experience worked in the FBI um, has done all kinds of, of different types of searches and I'll let her give you guys the whole story, but I want to welcome Sonia Nordstrom to the show. So Sonia, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show and give us your experience, your input and everything like that. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So for, for those, you know, obviously we know the dog world's a small world, but um, for people that may have not, it, their, their world's, let's say, the bed bug world or their world is straight narcotics, they may not have ever uh, been experienced or exposed to human remains. Give our listeners uh, a little synopsis of your background and where you started and where you're at today. Sure. Um, I'm much like uh, all the volunteer search dog handlers. I, I was an FBI agent at the time. And I bumped into a search and rescue group. I've always been dog passionate. And I had a little dog I rescued off the freeway. And uh, that was the beginning of the end for me. I started 25 years ago and never stopped. Um, So I joined that group. And I was there for a year. I then moved to California, to Los Angeles, and continued with that dog and realized that she was not going to be reliable or what I needed. And I was very fortunate to fall in with a police canine training group in addition to working with California Rescue Dog Association. Um, So from there, I saw through the police canine group what true cultivated working dogs look like. And I set out to get one, and I got a nice German Shepherd from a a very well-known breeder in New York, Jody Potter. 
who who puts out lots of great high interest in dogs. And um and I I worked myself silly with him and under the guidance of some of the nation's best people, truthfully. Um and And I'll I'll say you got to be in a uh region, Los Angeles, with people in the dog world with vast experience, lots of uh, operational experience. Um, I'll throw out Don Yarnell's name because that was one of the main ones you got to experience and work with. And, uh, um, you know, I don't want to sell yourself short because a lot of listeners who, you know, in law enforcement, you know, know LA is a, is a quite the proving ground when it comes to canine. Um, and Don back in those days was one of those pioneers that you got to spend time with. Yeah. And also he really was the mentor of my mentors. And, but, but the other thing that I think people may not really understand is when you're a canine officer with LAPD or LA Sheriff's department, you're one of less than 20 in a department of 9,000 sworn or, or 20 in a department of 12,000 sworn. So it is a highly competitive and very elite unit of people. And that doesn't include the surrounding communities. So high-end, high-end tactical people, high-end dogs, obviously they've got the budget. We're not talking a onesie-twosie department. And not that that's going to be bad. I'm just saying I just was lucky, right? And I, I was constantly seeking out the very best I could find. And luckily the area that I was in, had incredible i mean when you're in a high density area like that uh you're going to more than likely be exposed to some of the best that are out there well there's just so much calls for service there's so many ways to gain experience when you have an environment that's fruitful in the sense of where dogs can get used quite a bit and that's huge because just like you said it's not the fault of you know, I can say in my own experience, my first department I worked for was a 35-man department, and I had some pretty uh, intense calls there, and I went to a bigger agency, and I had a lot more calls, but, so we're not saying that, but the, when you have an opportunity, uh, or the agency you work for has high volume, it allows you to have a learning curve that is kind of expedited. In addition to the institutional knowledge. Yes. Nobody there is, is you know, the institutional knowledge, nobody there is just, oh, well, I'm the most senior guy, so I'm just going to carry it on. So anyway, it's, I was fortunate enough to sort of get a great visual of what a good working dog looks like. Um, When they, when I trained with them and their dogs were finding somebody and doing either a bark and hold or or a fight or a bite, mine was doing a refind. I did all the same searches they did. And, and luckily the group I worked with, um, because California is litigious, it wasn't just go bite somebody, go bite somebody. It was really focused on the hunt. If you don't find them, people are going to get killed. So we did. So the group I happened to land with had a really good focus on hunting and searching. And so my dog's response at the end of that search was the only thing that was different. Mm -hmm. And, and, and they cultivated it up. And so anyway, very fortunate. And then when I, so I was still a volunteer doing it all after hours from the Bureau. It wasn't Bureau sanctioned. So then when the Bureau, and I was working on a violent crime squad in Los Angeles and I was on the evidence response team with Los Angeles. So when my dog certified, I said, Hey, you know, you're calling in volunteers. I'm one of them. So why don't I just sort of get incorporated here? So then they started using me 
And so it still was always my dog. It wasn't a formal, but there were probably six of us in the country doing this. Mm -hmm. There were people in Texas and North Carolina. So it wasn't a formalized program. But as a result, they did end up sending me on various bureau cases and traveling and out of country and Mexico and the Middle East. So I did get some nice exposures. Um, I certainly was in a position to, um, to, and of course, I had a relationship with the other departments. So when there was a call, they'd call me and I'd say, let me check with my supervisor. And if I didn't have trial or court Mm -hmm. or something, I'd go and do a dog search. So it worked out really nicely. And then and then with time, I was able to go to training on duty and, and I could go to searches on duty. And unless it was, if it was a criminal matter, I could sure. go to searches on duty. If it was just a lost fisherman or something, I'd do it on my own, like every other volunteer. So it just kind of evolved from there. And, and I just was so fortunate to meet just some, I mean, amazing trainers, which again, a lot of it's luck. Yeah. No, I, I relate because a lot of times uh, when I did my background story at the beginning of this year, I, I made the joke. It was for me, right place, right time. I, it wasn't necessarily something I did special later on my, my work ethic or my desire to become better, um, you know, put me in places. So I had more opportunities, but, uh, so many times it was just right place, right time. My willingness or wanting to do something different or learn, uh, allowed me some unique opportunities. So I, I can relate to what you're saying is, you know, I think we both at times would pinch ourselves going, I can't believe that actually happened or I got to go do that. <laughs> exactly. And so opportunity, uh, and, and I'll give myself credit. I did not squander the opportunity. Mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you how many, I did not sit at training and jaw jack. I sat at, I followed every single dog. I was either watching or hiding or working. It, it was, it was a wonderful, you know, eight hour training, whatever, once a week. And then, I was also fortunate that when I got my first dog, there were other dogs. So we all were at four days a week. So I got to go through that. And then when that dog passed away, two of the other training buddies passed away within the same 72 hours. Mm. So we started that cycle again. So again, obviously not lucky to lose dogs, but fortunate that I got that intensive quality training from the get-go. And it it, it taught me to do component-based training. Um, it taught me not just to go out and wander around and talk my dog into something. It taught me, and then at the same time, I was doing the search and rescue training, which taught me more about, you know, how do you cover 160 acres? Mm-hmm. How do you work the topography? Where are you going to find odor? So, so the police environment is a much more yard-to-yard, corner-to-corner, you know, y- you learn odor behavior in a smaller context. Mm -hmm. When you go out and do wilderness searches, you learn odor in a humongous context of what it did last night, what it's doing today, what it's doing now, falling, rising, and you learn it relative to topography. Um, So I was getting that at the same time. So it became a nice broad base that, that carried on. So at this point, I'm on my fifth dog. So I did 23 years with the Bureau um, probably more than 21 of it was violent crimes and crimes against children, which fed in also to, you know, looking for homicide victims and mm-hmm. serial murder victims. And, um, and then, uh, then I retired about six and a half years ago, which seems like not so long ago, but it is. Um, <laughs> and so I've continued. So now I run a little dog training business and a protection dog business. And then I kind of, um, 
uh, involved in sort of cultivating up a search and rescue group here in Utah. So with that vast experience that you've had and the different things that you've been through, um, tell us one of those stories or some, an experience that stands out to you that maybe was profound for you in your development or something that's always stuck with you throughout all those different amazing deployments and searches and things that you've done. Um, I think as anybody who works a SAR dog will attest, fines are few and far between. Um, it really is based on opportunity. I mean, obviously if you're working on the border, you're probably more likely to find people, but, um, I know dogs that have gone an entire career with nothing, not because they're bad, but because it just wasn't there. So, um, like I said, I, I had opportunity. We're, we're not like a drug dog that goes out on 300, you know, 300 searches a year. We're going out on dozen or two. Some of them are multi-day. Some of them last all day. It's sort of a different, if you were doing it by hours, it probably sort of accumulates <laughs> But it's nothing compared to the drug dog handler that goes out, runs the car five times a day, and get you know they're they're getting fines all the time, they're getting confirmation all the time. So we're pretty much searching blanks, and a big portion of the search and rescue um, job is to eliminate areas. So you'll have a homicide, and the the detectives will be, look, we really don't know, but this was their favorite place. Let's go search it, or this is where the guy, the grounds where he works. So a lot of it is elimination after elimination after elimination. So. A funny part of that is um, my first find, which of course I think with everybody is kind of the one that you never, it's, it's monumental, right? And it, it wasn't that it was so crazy difficult, but it was, it was the Yosemite murders, which made international news back in the late 90s. It was a mother and her daughter and a visiting friend from South America. It was Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Pelosi, um, Peloso. And there was a task force set up and it was Kerry Stainer. He was a serial murderer and he ended up killing, you know, three of them and another girl before he got caught. Um, and he's on death row in California. But uh, basically what happened was, you know, 40 days or so into the investigation, the rental car that they had was found in the woods, completely burned, And two of the victims were in the trunk, but one was not. And so then there was sort of this panic, of course, the whole time it was panic to find them. But at that point, it was, wow, maybe she's alive. So there was this real hope that we would find the third victim of this kidnapping alive. And so I stuck around. I went up on the initial search to see if she was in the immediate vicinity, if she had maybe run and been killed or something. And we didn't find it. And then I offered to stay because I was with the Bureau at the time and the Bureau was letting me be up there. And, and, um, and the ASACs, the assistant special in charge, they talked to each other and said, yeah, she can stay. So I said, look, I'll run leads like every other agent. I'll go and interview people and I'll go run stuff down. And then if there's a dog lead, I'm here and I'll do it. So that's what ended up happening is that they said, oh, you know, somebody saw birds here. I'd go check it. Then I'd go do an interview of some sex offender. And then and then somebody said, oh, somebody's digging in their backyard. I'd go check it. The wa-. So I was driving all over the place. They were, they were, you know. 50, 60 miles away from the command post and where they had found things. Um, one of the leads that came in on the last day, and it was this crude map. And I said, all right, whatever. I went with one guy. I said, okay, I drove the 60 miles or whatever it was out to it. And it was a SAR sergeant. And I said, what do you think? Four dogs, three days? He says, yeah, that's about right. And we found her in about you know, 
I'd say less than 10 minutes from parking the car to getting her. And she was, uh, tucked in the brush and, and, um, badly decomposed. Um, so that one obviously, uh, is incredibly memorable. And it, it did change the whole focus of the investigation because now it, you know, it, it kind of, People, people weren't hope. It just changed everything because all of the focus was on finding her. And then once she was found, they could move forward. And then the evidence team, evidence response team came in. So in terms of an evidentiary response, my dog did not provide his trained indication. He had not had a full body exposure before that. She was very rank. He went up. He stalked it. He was weird from the parking lot. He did the Yoda ear thing. And I'm like, something's going on. And then he was on it and I, he was, he was, didn't get within 10 feet of her. And I called him back and then he gives his bark and he gets all excited. I didn't even have his toy because we had had so many blank searches. I handed him my water bottle. And as I've said before, no water bottle was safe. Anybody who knew Nico knew that their pack would disappear if there was a water bottle on it. So it, it clearly made a very large impact in his brain. Of course, we were all, um, it's very sad, but at that point we were on a mission and we just completed it. So we were, um, it was very impactful and everybody was, you know, pretty up about it. So he, he was a funny boy, but moving forward, um, there was body behavior and he had multiple finds after that and he worked the Pentagon. So what's interesting is three dogs after him, I had a change of behavior that I had never seen in the dog I was working, but it was exactly like Nico. And I got a fine because of it. So I could look back to those experiences with him and how they impacted my future success based on recognition of things that I couldn't simulate in training, that I only saw in the field that I could later apply and have success with, which was, you know, I, I, that dog was, he was a lovely dog, very animated. If there was one particle, he'd be jumping out of his skin. So great first dog, nothing subtle about him loud and, you know, just a happy, sweet boy that was, that was just so excited to do everything. And so it was a wonderful first dog that I could really learn from that would, that just would never ignore odor. He, he was always giving me what he could. One of the detectives one time, he said, he's lighting up like a Christmas tree. And that was him. So that's the kind of dog you want when you first start, you know, just this happy, happy, bouncy, animated guy. And he would come out of a dead sleep if he went through odor and, and start barking out a window of a car, he did it once. I'm like, he was, he was a funny boy. So anyway, so that's, you know, your first, your first dog, your first, um, your first success, so to speak. Um, you know, everybody that does this puts in a ton of time and the fruits of that time are, are few and far between. And none of us are paid. It's a labor of love. It's an expensive second career that, that takes a lot out of you. But, um, so, you know, we're in it to help and to make a difference. And, you know, you're never a hero when you're finding someone who's deceased. Uh, nobody's really joyous about it. But wow, is it important to those who have lost someone? Oh, for sure. And and it's has its parallels to the, you know, bomb dog world where, you know, you do lots of training and, and lots of scenario type things. And then when you're out for real, uh, finding something is much more on the rare side of things. Um, and if you do find something, it's not something you're joyous over per se. 
Um, but what I've also noticed within the uh, search and rescue community is it's you've got it's search and rescue or recovery. And yeah, I call it search and recovery for yeah. me because I don't do any rescuing. Yeah, so there's <laughs> there's there's a unique aspect because of that, and the organizations that are out there, they're all over the United States, everywhere, and we also have you know Nat, we have FEMA, and we have of course your local levels, but one of the things that we talked about and one of the things that I've seen is, you know, depending on a situation, something that's, I find unique in a sense is that multidiscipline detection search and rescue slash recovery dog, which is the dogs that do live find and human remains. Talk about why that exists and the, in the area, so to speak, where it's important to have that dog that can do both. Yeah, so it's funny. I'll just look at myself as an example, and I think I'm very representative of so many people. We all come in, Lassie and Rintintin in our minds, we're going to rescue that Boy Scout who's lost in the woods. I think I think that's kind of the picture. Someone's like, I'm going to have a dog, and they're going to rescue a child. And I remember my first trainer, he said, if you find one child in your dog's lifetime, you've validated every minute of your training. And that has always, everything he said has always stuck with me. He was, he was, I haven't found fault in anything yet. So, um, so in any event, that's how I think we all kind of get into it. Or there was a big influx after, after the Oklahoma bombing, right? Everybody's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I got to do that. I got to go help. Right. So it's all, it's all born out of a very generous, gracious belief. Um, So then what happens is with the advent of cell phones and cell towers, people kind of don't get lost. So in, in the same way that they used to. Um, so when I first started, we were a live find, live find, live find. And then you'd throw a big PVC pipe thing with who knows what in it from how many years ago under a bush, run your dog over it. That was your cadaver training or your cadaver exposure. And that was that. And then the dog, I mean, the dog's kind of, and of course we graduated from that quite a bit, but that was kind of the initial protocol that I was exposed to. Mm-hmm. And, and so dual purpose, and then we do our water. So you do your drownings, which some people will look at it and say, this is really just a full spectrum of human odor from live all the way through until bone, right? Through the yeah. whole thing. So you can look at it as, as a single discipline of human, right? Um, there are many who do trailing and air scent and article and cadaver, and water, and avalanche, which includes articles. Mm -hmm. Um, The justification is meeting the mission of the area in which they live. Yeah. Uh, If it works for the departments they serve, fine. But people need to be aware, I think, of the potential training conflicts, of the court conflicts. So so if you take, and, and in my opinion, again, this is all my opinion, a FEMA dog, if I am the one live person in that pile of 300 dead people, I sure as heck hope your dog isn't cross-trained because you're going to spend a lot of time finding 300 dead people. Sure. So that's why FEMA, I'm pretty sure, has gone to single-purpose lives. And now they have sort of the cadaver, the cadaver, cadaster dog, right? Mm-hmm. So in that venue, that's sensible, right? Then we move to the straight-up wilderness dog, the dog that's up in the mountains. Well, the majority of my team is the wilderness dog. And what we do, the mission for that dog is find a live person, 
But I do live in a place where there is not cell service for about 60 miles. Or you've got to hike to some crazy 13,000 peak to maybe get a bar. Mm-hmm. So we do actually lose people. We had, a, we had a child just three weeks ago who fortunately was found. Um, so we do lose live people, but we also, people expire because you've got, you know, I'm at high elevation. It's 70 during the day and sure. it drops to 30 and snow in August. So we that the true wilderness dog does need to be tuned into that full body surface remains that may be the person who didn't make it before being found. Mm-hmm. And we, we have had cases where, you know, somebody, a hunter in particular, it's always in snow season, they disappear, the snows come in, you get 10 feet, you're going and looking for them the following July when the snows finally melted off. Yeah. So those are, you know, sort of, and of course you've got tons of predation. Um, so there, there's, that's why the, the true wilderness dog will also sort of incorporate the disarticulation and the, 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 the larger source, let's put it that way. Okay. Um, there is an absolute mission and function for that. Then you have, which is really more the, um, what I would call when people lean toward HRD, it's really more toward criminal. Yes. But even within that criminal spectrum, your mission is, obviously, if it's surface, it's surface. There's no issue of whether or not you're just a finder. You may as well have been walking. I remember when I, my dog died tragically, I'm working myself crazy like a lunatic, an emotional mess, training my new dog, and I hear Pomeranian finds girl off a trail. I'm like, what am I training for? <laughs> it's so counterintuitive that we uh-huh. work so hard and it seems so easy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? So anyway, so that that crime scene dog, to me, the primary focus of an effective tool is for the clandestine grave. And that doesn't mean I'm constantly working burials. What it means is that I have a dog that is not going to indicate on a ground disturbance, on a scent pool, on other interesting odors. They're not going to be distracted by a bunch of detectives in a backyard standing around. Um, so, so when you start having a dog that does article search and live find search, now all of a sudden you have a scent pool because they're like, hey, this is an interesting area. Well, you're going to yeah. see all this change of behavior. The dog may show you some response. And because we can't train very routinely for that situation, yeah. uh, maybe all I'm going to get is that change of behavior. Maybe he's not going to go to full response. Maybe all I'm going to see is that, hey, wait a second. This is indicative. These are changes of behavior when he's in human odor. He's not going to final but he's not, I mean, you can't expect him to because this is actually a first exposure to this totality of circumstances. Correct. So, so for me, when I was out working and I had that multi-purpose dog, Nico was alive and dead and he had success and he worked the tenant. He was highly successful. So absolutely it can be done. But then I had situations where I was talking myself out of stuff and I actually had a find, a clandestine grave where he actually had headed out a couple of hundred yards, which I, I had always been told it was subtle. Mm -hmm. So at 200 yards, I didn't think that would be subtle. And he headed out and we had it on the GPS and it's like, Oh no, there's searchers down there. So I called him back without letting him fully investigate. Uh. Oh no, that's because of this. So I found myself reasons and biases. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, well, 
yeah, that's probably that. So I found myself talking myself out of things when he was showing me things Mm -hmm. and saying, well, it could be this, it could be that. So for me, in my mind, I needed to know this is the only thing I train for. If my dog shows me what he knows, gives me the changes of behavior I see time and time again, is solely focused on this, then I have to trust him. And if I'm trying to filter through which thing am I seeing, am I seeing the light up for that became a conflict for me. Yep. So that's why I believe that if you're going to put yourself out on a clandestine grave search or even so, so it just is what it is. Right. So some people are like, no, I give my dog a different command. There's all these different ways that people maybe mitigate that for me. I did not want to mitigate it. I said I can't. And 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 I feel that it has been a good choice. It it cuts my tra- my training is much more focused. Mm-hmm. But again, I and I take and so now my debate as a single purpose, let's say dead people, mm-hmm. right? Um now my thing is, you know, my my dog that just retired, he's done the World War II remains in Europe. So now that's sort of what they call the historical human remains, right? And then there's even like the prehistoric, whatever, everybody's labeling everything. But now I'm almost conflicted because I'm like, well, should I even be doing that huge, large area for the full surface body in the wilderness? Or should I be limiting myself to a smaller source? So then even within that single purpose discipline in terms of single odor, I've got this huge array of where do I want to focus? And I'll... I'll tell you that this dog that did the World War II stuff, I had two other dogs I was running at the same time. They could do it, but they didn't grab it the way he did. It's just, it was the, he was truly gifted to be that dog. Um, so it's been kind of interesting, right? Um, and, and of course, he'd get stuff elsewhere too. So I always, my resolution is I start with the mission. And then I build my tool to serve the specific mission that I intend to serve. So I always tell everybody, train for your 80 or 90%. Mm-hmm. You can do your little offshoots because your dog knows odor and it should respond in different environments, right? So that's why I've, I've responded to disasters at whatever and been successful. But that's not my focus. My focus is my mission. And then I can do a little bit of the outlier stuff, but I'm not going to go way over to the other side if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and and it it brings the importance of clarity. And the clearer things are for a particular dog, the clearer it is for the handler to interpret what the dog is telling them. And and especially when things start going into the legal world, the more clear things are, the better you're able to articulate why this happened or what your dog was telling you or what you saw uh, from the dog at that particular scene and things like that. And um, when we kind of muddy the waters up or we do these different things that convolute the information, we start doing the things that you brought up, which is the guessing part of it. Well, maybe it was this, or maybe it was that, or the uh, there is this condition happening, and I think that's why this happened. And then again, we become not confident in what that 
dog or tool was telling us. So our interpretation gets a little sideways or not as clear. And then that great asset, that dog in the, in the way we've got to use it gets diluted or can be questioned in a way that, you know, obviously causes us problems or we have to go into great explanations as to why uh, this or that. I think what people need to realize is if you are in fact challenged in court, the standard of the defense is not to prove that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. It's to cast doubt on what you've said. Yeah. So if you can shore up and not have the doubt. So for example, you know, you and I chatted before I, I had a case where I had to testify and I had such a sense of calm because I said, I work double blind. Handler influence is mitigated because he pulled the leash out of my hand to go to it. Um, I trained him for nothing else. There is no conflict. And to be able to say that and not have them say, but what about this or what about this? And then I said, look, I proof him off of XYZ. I'm exposed to dead animals all the time. I go and work in areas with garbage. So I, I put out the materials of gloves and jars that I train in, whatever it is. I do everything I can to mitigate any chance of him responding to the wrong thing that may be in the environment. Um, and this is all he's trained for. So he responded in accordance with his training. And I really can sit here and say, and I don't know why else he would have responded that way. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, um, oh, maybe there was an article because my dog's an avalanche dog and there was a blanket that smelled like it had been wrapped around somebody or I've been training, you know, semen detection or I don't know. So you, you start creating conflicts for yourself. It, and, and I think what happens when you tell people that, Maybe if they want to be doing crime scene work or clandestine grave work or, or something where they're going to be used in a warrant, when you tell them that, you know, you really should be single purpose, I think people mistakenly say, well, my dog can. Absolutely, your dog can. But it's my dog can can be trained. I mean, how many odors are, are, are explosives dogs trained on? How many odors are, are mm-hmm. uh, arson dogs trained on? It's not a matter of what the dog can be trained on. It's a matter of how does that play out to the mission that we have to articulate. It wasn't a bomb in the car. It was a body in the car. It's not drugs in a locker. It's a bomb in a locker. There's a big difference in your response. So if I'm searching and my dog is in the airport and he stops on a backpack, am I calling a bomb squad? Or am I just opening it looking for drugs because it's been abandoned? This is where the conflict comes in is the purpose of the mission of the dog. The dog can do it all. You can train a dog for everything, absolutely everything. So that's how I look at it. Yeah. And and maybe you disagree with that. I'm not sure. But, no, no, no. Um, it, it, it's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of things we can do with a dog. There's a lot of things we can train a dog to do. Um, and the old adage is just because we can doesn't always mean we should. And uh, it depends, again, the realm in which we are working in and what that mission is. And just like you were saying, you know, obviously I'm not going to take a drug dog and also train it to be a bomb dog. Um, there's there's a lot of things to do. And, and as I, you know, became a uh, better understanding of the world of search and rescue, you know, 
my first initial thing was like, well, one side should be this and one side should be, so we should have live find over here and we should have uh, HR over here. And then, you know, through experience and then obviously conversations with people like you, I got to see, okay, yep, it definitely makes sense for a dog who is trained to do live find and cadaver work in this type of mission. Dogs that are doing uh, more evidentiary type work crime scene and or historical type things uh, need to be very specific for HR. And then even within HR, I would even say sometimes you could even kind of split it even further, uh, depending again on what that mission or what that team's objectives are. So there's that need for specialty and there's that need for general purpose. It just, again, goes back to what is your job? What are you going to go out there and go do? And, And instead of, um, coming at it in the very beginning as a, I'm going to be a jack of all trades because it's so cool to get this title and this title and this title. Each person should look into it and go from the beginning. Well, what do I really want to do? And I understand sometimes we may not know you're, you're, you're new to this. So you don't know which way to go. And, uh, your friends or the organization says, Oh, you have to do this, 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 and this. And you may not know that, you know, two years from now, you're like, Oh, I really, really enjoy doing whatever the other thing is. And, so that you you learn, and then that's where the second dog comes in, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna do now this with this dog, but it's, yeah. it was all a learning curve. But the importance of and we'll kind of steer the conversation now towards the the criminal aspect. But I'll I'll start off with this aspect: how important is it? Because you brought up a good point when we we're talking offline. How important is it for record keeping, and what are sometimes the hazards of how you track information or do your records. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, I, I've changed my, my thinking and my practical logs. I just, I can never settle in on what I'm really, really happy with. So there are those who are busy. They're, they're logging their humidity, their everything, every single thing they're logging at every moment and they're putting it in and they're, and they're going almost crazy with it. To me, it's crazy. Um, of course it's accurate. It's super. I live in the high desert. We're up in the mountains. I go to training in the morning. It's 60. By the time I leave, it's high 80s. So I function in ranges. If I start to put it with 73.2 degrees, somebody can say, well, no, it was actually 72. You know, how accurate, like, so when they ask me how accurate are your records, I say, it's a very fair representation of what I've done. I tend to work in sort of, uh, zones, right? So I'll say 70s, 80s, because the wind will switch during the course of one problem. It'll switch direction. So I say, are the winds steady? Are they variable? What are they, you know, five miles an hour, three? So I don't want to put specific specifics. And then the other issue that I always kind of worry about is, okay, so now let's say I've got it electronic. Somebody makes a bunch of pie charts and they say, you've never worked in 43 degree temperatures. Well, that doesn't mean my dog can't work. I live in a in an environment that, you know, I, I get them out, I do what I can, but I'm functioning within the environment where I work, those circumstances. So sometimes uh, right now I've got all these different choices. I've got drop down menus to make it simple on my phone. Well, there's a lot of those choices that I'm not checking. It doesn't mean the dog's insufficient, but I feel like it's going to give somebody the opportunity to say, well, you've never done this. So that's the, that's the balance that we kind of have to find. And I, I never really feel like I find it. 
Um, because it doesn't negate a dog's ability because they haven't worked at 43.2 degrees. Mm. Um, it doesn't negate their possibility because they've never been exposed to a herd of buffalo. It doesn't, you know, these are the things. So typically my logs sort of, they kind of just tool along. And when there's sort of this anomalous occurrence, then I kind of jump in and say, hey, I saw this. I'm not sure why. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to look at the reasons why it may have happened and see if I can simulate them to either proof them off of those issues or to remediate the issues. If, in fact, I find, oh, that is the cause. Now let's work on it. So I, I, I really alternate between drills. I do a lot of component training. I do a lot of motivational training. I don't just do one thing. So it goes back and forth. I do track, um, you know, known blind, double blind. I do track generally the size of the area. I, I've particularly been noting the distance away from me at which the dog commits to odor independently, mm -hmm. because that goes to the specific argument of handler influence. I recently did a training. My dog was on odor. I have it on the GPS, and I'll sometimes throw my GPS thing in there. He was in place for two minutes before I found him. Mm -hmm. I have him on the GPS. I was jogging to get there, and he was solid on it for two minutes. Obviously, I did not influence his hunt. I did not tell him what to do. So this is my – so when I think of a logbook, I think of it as how do I mitigate the arguments of the defense? Yes. When I take a call – I had a call last week. I just, the, the detective was getting a warrant. I said to him specifically, I said, is this a contingent warrant or do you have in the warrant that you're allowed to penetrate the surface, that you're allowed to go and dig? Or is it contingent on a dog's indication? I said, it would be great if it's not, because then you can look wherever you think it's probable and the dog is just helping you to hone in on mm -hmm. where you want to go. So sometimes I've done warrants, I've, you know, not that I've done it, but I've been asked to use my dog in a warrant and it's been contingent on if the dog indicates we can dig. Yeah. And and so whenever I take that call, I'm asking, what are the grounds? Who has um do the people so for example, if it's my house and a serial murderer lived here before me and they get a warrant and the dogs come in and they're whatever, and I can just tear them apart. It doesn't matter because I don't have standing. I'm not the subject. Mm -hmm. So it just becomes a civil issue. So sort of assessing what is the risk as a handler when you're going in, how much weight will be put on your dog? If there's going to be a lot of weight put on your dog and you aren't rock solid, you really shouldn't be taking the search. So there was a time when people, oh, that'll be interesting. That'll be interesting. I'll do that. That'll be interesting. Well, you have no business being there and you don't know who you're going to be going up against. You might be going up against OJ Simpson's team of attorneys. Mm -hmm. You're going to be crucified. Anybody will be crucified under sure. that circumstance. But, yeah. but I think what people need to understand is that, you know, you're inserting yourself into a potential homicide. People accused of homicide have very little to lose. They're going to jail forever. Mm -hmm. So they're going to fight and it's going to end up in court. So so the idea of the log is to be able to mitigate the defenses of 
you told your dog what to do. So mm-hmm. even when I'm on the phone with the detective this last time, he started to kind of tell me, well, we've got, I said, please stop. I said, I need to go in as if I'm looking at a six pack of pictures to, to pick a robber. Sure. I need to go in objectively with no predisposed anything because that way it'll be objective. Yes. I need to go in clean and objective. So I'm always, even when I did investigations, I, I worked violent crime my whole career. I was doing warrants all the time. Everything about my case was to follow a logical path to conclusion and then shore up any defense around my resolution. Mm-hmm. And that way it's impenetrable. And we have to have that same mentality, I believe, when working in a situation for law enforcement where you may end up in court. And there is the distinction of, are you just a finder? Like I could be walking a poodle and he goes off the road and finds somebody. Well, there's no real, I mean, I might end up in court, but I'm just a witness to finding a head on the side of the road, right? I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're inserting yourself in um, and you're going in under the authority and then they're going to use it. And now the next thing you know, you're getting everything you've ever done scrutinized. And it's not easy. And and they don't have to prove that you're ineffective. They just have to make people think you might yeah. be. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club Channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, Go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordk9.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. You know, for me, there's, you know, I come from the law enforcement world where, you know, the maintenance of your training records was important because, again, the defense wants to look at certain things. Do you do this? Do you do that? So, for example, is a lot of times in the drug dog world, they weren't, or we weren't uh, annotating when we did a search that had no target odor present. We just always documented what we found. 
and it only took a couple court cases where they started going, well, you know, apparently every time your dog gets out, it finds something. And you're like, no, 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 we do also do blank. I don't see it in your records. I don't see anything that you search that doesn't have odor in it. And of course, the modification had to start happening where we we're documenting not only what contained odor in it, but also what was in the search area or intentional search areas that were blank. And, you know, not only did do I see that in the narcotics world, um, it's I also see it as a need for the HRD world as well, because the uh, same kind of thing happens. We, we write down a lot of things that we find and don't document uh, searches. Uh, sometimes there's no documentation of searches generally whatsoever, but uh, when searches are documented, it's about the search area, what we found and things like that versus how many searches are you doing where the dog did correctly identify nothing was present. Um, it just doesn't get written down as often as possibly as it should have. Because again, that bolsters the cases the dog does no odor and the dog does perform correctly when there is no odor present as well. Exactly. So the, uh, and then it's, it, again, this also helps the law enforcement aspect. So that detective who, who has no canine experience whatsoever, who's, you know, has his responsibilities to investigate this case and, uh, cadaver dogs are a tool that are readily available to help work a case. Um, they may not know that the importance of your records or what should be written down and things like that. So you bring up another point, which um, to me is critical, which is also helping educate the law enforcement side of this equation. So that way they better know about that tool, the, the dog that can be you know used in any no- number of different ways when it comes to uh, whether it be human remains and or blood and things like that, but create that open dialogue so that way they may not bias or taint the handler with, you know, spontaneously uttering information about a search or a, a, a case, but also, you know, knowing for, the, for them what to look for when they make contact with a, a team they're about ready to use. And I see your records. Do you do this? How do you do that? Um, just so they don't, find out these things on the stand and someone asked them, why didn't you guys ask these questions before we use this individual? Do you find out that, yeah, they do nose work, they do drug work and the dog also did this, you know, and, and did they, you guys just let them walk all over the crime scene. You guys didn't take any preventative measures whatsoever. Well, I didn't know the handler just says that's how they work their dog. So I didn't know we shouldn't do that. So yeah, it's, it's, and as you know, in a lot of law enforcement, um, depending upon how they're structured, um, they're not experts in everything. You come off patrol, you do a detective rotation. So it depends on the department. I mean, like I worked in, at LA, there was RHD. I mean, that's what they do. They're the most, and I felt like an idiot because I'm like a, a newbie and I'm working with these 30 year veterans. I'm like, okay, you guys are gods. I, you know, it's totally different in a department like that. But many of them are just sort of, I rotate through canine for two years. I rotate through detectives for two years. I rotate through, then I go to sergeant. So, so the consumer is easily snowed. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes you get a call and they say, my sergeant said I need to call a dog. What what can you do? They don't know the types. They don't know the different mission directions. Um, Certainly the question of whether or not somebody somebody is suitable for court is never presented Mm -hmm. as one of the, it's like, oh, he's got a good dog. Well, maybe he can't speak because I'll tell you when you're in court, your dog's not there. Yeah. So I better not nope. be there. It's just you. <laughs> yes. It's just you. It's 
and there's a saying in the bureau, if it ain't on paper, it never happens. Exactly. You're famous for having beautiful oh, paper. So yeah. if there's nothing else, there's beautiful paper. But at the same time, it's how can you as a handler articulate because you have to present to not only the judge, but the jury. And especially yes. so when you're in a prelim or you're in an evidentiary hearing, there's no jury. The judge is the one who's looking at the law, comparing it to what you're saying. You've got to be able to articulate and understand, yet you don't want to go down this rabbit hole of, oh, I'm a science expert, yeah. you know. Yep. It's just so, so it's kind of the, in a way, you find yourself educating. So, for example, when I had to testify, I said, look, the dog on any clandestine grave is actually finding the plume of odor. They're not getting to source. It's mm -hmm. down five or six feet. Mm -hmm. They're indicating the plume of odor. The dog responds to the odor of human remains. Yeah. So how you, what language you use, how you document your report, because the report, a report, you know, as we all know, you're going to be sitting with it three years after the fact. Yeah. And that report is about recreating the scene. Yep. So, like I said, I, I articulated things in my report on this one case, and they're all like, why did you even put that in? I said something like the dog, you know, jumped unassisted. He's a huge dog. It's a small trunk. He went in, and he banged a sit with his leg hanging out. I didn't say words like that. but And they're like, well, what's the deal about the leg hanging out? I said it was clearly not a position of comfort. Yeah. It became very relevant. The fact that he pulled the leash out of my hand to go to odor, it becomes very relevant. It's a dog acting independently to do what he's supposed to do. So these are all little things that we can make note of. And, and I learned through th literally thousands of victim interviews. When you work bank robberies in L.A., you talk to thousands of <laughs> <Yeah>. victims, literally. <laughs> um, but I learned that those somewhat weird little things that the victim would say, the witness, I'm like, well, I'll put it in. I don't know what the heck it means, but I'll put, I would put it in and literally three months down as the case unfolded, it was a key piece. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that if you can, if you can, when you're writing your reports, um, really say, okay, how can I paint this picture? We're not trying to write some flowery novel. This is factual yep. but how without saying i know my dog was independent because i just say he pulled the leash out of my hand mm -hmm. that's the fact yeah then we can discuss why he may have done it or blah 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 he pulled the leash out of my hand he went to the back of the car and he sat and i was on the other side of the car mm -hmm. i was x distance away mm -hmm. so that i can say where in my report where was i standing yeah as the dog worked what did he do as he worked? Was I with him? Was I within three feet? Was I on leash? Was I off leash? These are all little things that after the fact, did the dog, was I going left and the dog did a quick direction change and pulled me right? Mm -hmm. These are things that belong in there because they help me to recreate, um, if not videoed, they help me to recreate that scene accurately to then articulate how that is relevant mm -hmm. when I'm on the stand. Mm -hmm. And, and well, and well, easily relatable to those that are that don't know anything about dogs, which is going to be your people, judge, jury, lawyers, things of that nature. And when you read that or they hear that explained, they can understand it. Versus, like you said, you know, we have a tendency, myself included, to go into some technical jargon that goes over their heads, and then now we miss our opportunity to 
correctly or fairly uh, illustrate what actually happened in a way that would make a difference. So you you bring in a, a very important point that um, you know me and other colleagues have talked about when it comes to dog training. We focus so much on the dogs that we do not do nearly enough of what we should do for the handler. And what we need to do for the handlers is preparation and things what you just discussed, which is starts off with how you write or document what happened and then how you explain that to your peers, i.e. judge and jury later on, uh, what occurred and be able to answer questions in a way that one that stays in your lane and your qualifications, but then two is a way that conveys what happened and is matches what you wrote down. Because just like you said, many times these could be years later. And if you, you, your records were sloppy or what you wrote down was, you know, just bullet points, it, 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 then you have interpretation. So back to my main point here is we have training has to encompass more than just working a dog, more than just doing a scenario for the dog. We, we need to also extrapolate and focus on handler education, training, and preparation uh, way more than we really do. Well, even when you're talking to log, for the handler to arch, and that's, like I said, I have now incorporated when my dog is indicating 150 yards from me, or when I come around the corner and he's on point, I put that in there. Because if I'm next to him and he's correct, that's a very big difference than when he has gone off on his own, sourced the odor, and given the indication without my presence. So what even in terms of beyond sort of the testimony and the report is, are you aware of what you're doing? And are you articulating so that you can then preemptively say, this is not a dog that is really influenced by me, especially in the search and recovery. We work at great distances. The dogs are often running off a quarter mile. So it's it's actually, it's tough. I mean, you're a drug dog, you're on a leash, you circle a car, you're going to get hit by a car if you're not. So mm-hmm. it's much more difficult for them to maybe articulate, but they could say, I routinely do drills where I have the dog and I turn my back or I specifically go the wrong way from where I know it's going to be and let the dog pull around and and I'm on the backside of the car. So there are ways to articulate what am I doing to proof and mitigate my, so there's handler proofing, proofing the dog off of you as a handler. There's cue proofing, there's odor proofing. So, uh, and I recently wrote a blog about it. I said, what are we doing to influence our dogs? We don't even know it. So that's oh, yeah. we're getting a set of eyes on and, and, and really building awareness. So when I do even my nose work classes, so much of what I do is actually handling. Mm-hmm. So I imprint the dogs. I, I kind of do all the more. I just kind of have sort of a leash and I imprint the dogs. But then I talk about, are we walking? Are we moving? Are we sideways? Do we have them stuck? Can we turn our body? There's all sorts of things. So in some ways, we do need the dog to cue off of us. It's mm-hmm. my job to get him where he needs to go. If I keep pushing him in a particular corner where maybe he's stuck because it's the shade and the odor has collected there and I just keep pushing him there and pushing him there and he's not sourcing, I have to trust, okay, he's not going to source. I blade my body, it frees him out, mm-hmm. and it pushes him 
with me not saying anything. Mm -hmm. And then it frees him up. And then he catches the next shade patch where it actually is. Mm -hmm. So knowing how to use our body in a productive way of cueing while not influencing the outcome. So for me, whenever I see my dog get into odor, my job is to get him into odor. When I see him in odor, I fade away. I mm -hmm. fade right out and just watch him. And then if he's not getting something productive that he can grab, I push back in and we push out again. And again, I might be doing this from a distance of 25 yards or mm -hmm. five feet. Well, like you said, you, you're managing your search as, as a handler should do versus the, the pendulum sometimes swings to the point where we say, oh, I don't want to influence my dog at all. So I just stay out of it altogether. And that is also not a, a great option to use. You know, you have well, the on one the fake, like I'm looking at the sky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at the sky. I'm not looking at you. I'm like, okay, you're queuing by looking at the yeah. sky. So it's all good. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and, and again, we, we, we go, we went from uh, a generation where every search was micromanaged. We, 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 we'd present every eight to 10 inches to then sometimes the pendulum swings the other way where the handler just stands there and does nothing. And I always try to educate is your job is to manage. Bring the dog to the area that needs to be searched. While the dog is searching, you're interpreting what the dog is telling you, and then you manage and have a search strategy and go from there. And depending on the, you know, there's so many different variables, of course, but your job as that, one, the interpreter of the dog, two, is then manage that resource to do its job effectively. And, and then come back and articulate the results of what happened. Um, but again, you know, a lot of times dog training just turns into, let's put some hides out, run some dogs and do this. And well, you get your search pattern through hide placement. Sure. So the, yeah. you, your, your, your training problems, not you yeah, are yeah. what guide the dog and teach it where it can have success. Yeah. So this is why if you have a dog with appropriate drive, you can just present them with the different things and let them self-discover, of course, self-motivation, motivation, self-discovery. They can, and then through, through successive hides that are purposeful, not just randomized like mm -hmm. a pinball machine, mm -hmm. you can then develop the dog's brain to understand I can have success all these different places. So mm -hmm. I'm going to check all these different places in a systematic way. Yep. And then you just are in the middle of the room going, thank you very much for yep. covering the whole thing. <laughs> and then you as a handler know where the productive odors are going to be. So if he cut the corner, you let him do his thing and you're like, okay, you cut, okay. Hey buddy, come check the corner. Mm -hmm. That's where it's going to be. He goes in, you fade out. He's gone where you want. You get out of his way. You let him work it. You don't disrupt the scent. Mm -hmm. You don't disrupt anything. Mm -hmm. And so in search and rescue, that was the other thing that was great about training with police canines. I got all of that odor expo, you know, odor behavior um, in sort of a small environment, like rooms, right? Mm -hmm. Where's it going to go? How's it going to collect? Then you take it outside, and it's just sort of this macro environment. So, so you sort of say, okay, where are my productive? You look at an area and you say, what's going to be productive? I'm always a perimeter girl. I'm mm -hmm. always working a perimeter all the time, yeah. or I'm working a ridge or I'm working this. So, so we learn across the board how to get the dog's nose in odor. That's our job. Yeah. And once he's in odor, it's our job to trust him, to support him and to stay out of his way and let him do his thing. Yeah. That's always been my thing. 
And in our conversation earlier, we brought up another point that we were both on the same page about, which was implementation and use of a marker, an audible marker signal, whether it be the word, clicker, whistle, et cetera. Um, speak to the audience a little bit about your experience and how you've had value and success in that in human remains detection dogs. Yeah, for me, I love it. Um, I know that there's, and there's a progression to it. You don't just Correct. start doing it right away, right? So there's a progression. And that's and, a big mis- that- misunderstanding, I think, that we both go through at times. I know I do. People automatically assume that I've never done direct reward, but I'll let you kind of go on with what you're going to go to with this. Direct reward has its place for sure, and and and, and we both agree on it 100%. So I'll let you kind of, from there, take it uh, from that point. Yeah. So, so my progression is I build drive and enthusiasm for target odor through primary reward, which means I'm either throwing the odor or, or doing a runaway with the odor. I'm doing this high motivation for that odor, and then the dog doesn't have to do a darn thing. He's just getting a reward. And so I just kind of condition. So now when the dog doesn't get the reward, I've built this expectation for a reward. And when I'm doing that, the whole time I'm – I'm giving him that reward. I'm saying the word, yes. I'm saying, I'm saying, yes, reward, yes, reward. The second his nose touches it, yes, reward, yes, reward. And it's coming right in on his head. So he, it's really popping out of nowhere, right? So it's not that I'm standing 100 yards away like I do now. Um, so my progression is build drive and excitement and commitment for the odor. Then the dog will frustrate into the behaviors you want that can be captured He'll sustain with it because he wants it and you've built it. And he's like, you need to be paying me. Then you can use your marker to bridge it over to the pay. And, and initially, I, and depending on the dog, some dogs, you know, they get stressed out, whatever. But with my own dog, I was right there tossing it in. Well, I'm really not a good thrower. I'm not a good catcher. <laughs> I don't have good aim. So... For me, I started doing that secondary marker from a distance um, probably back in 2005 or six, maybe even before. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't that I knew what it was called. I didn't even know the term marker train. I mean, we all knew about don't shoot the dog and we yeah. had all read the books and we had all seen the dolphins with the whistles. So I never really, it just sort of evolved. And for me, I want my dogs working at a long distance. So I don't want them coming back to me, looking over their shoulders. So when I, I, I went through a little phase where I was trying to go in and, and really give them that big party at the odor, well, what I found, and that's why I switched to it, my particular dog that I was working sort of kept, but I need you over here with me. Mm-hmm. And he kept coming off to mm-hmm. get me. Mm-hmm. It still was fine. I called it look of panic. He comes like, ah, and I go, show me, and then he goes back. But so it was effective, but it became this convoluted thing that I created with my need to reward its source and fight its source and all these other things. So it's a very effective method. If you do, I mean, so there's different ways to do things. And again, the effectiveness of how well it works may depend in part on the dog. It probably also depends a lot on the execution of it. So at this point, and I'll say that my dog, I mean, I, I lose track of him. Somebody wears a GPS collar. He goes around a bend, he goes through the woods. And the next thing you know, he's on point. I don't know where the heck he is. And I kind of have to go find him, which is, that's our system. And that's great because I train predominantly, my training is for the backyard clandestine grave, the more close. So I don't, the fact that he's going far, oh, you should do a refine. No, this is what I want. This works for what I want. 
and I've had a bad knee. So it's great. I have a dog that covers the whole thing and I just stand there with a whistle yeah. and he comes flying back. And part of his reward, he loves to come back to, he loves to sure. fly back full speed. That running to me is such an explosion mm-hmm. of joy for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hold him on that odor a long time and he's just building and building and building and building. It's like a horse out of a gate when he comes back. Yeah. So it, it's not that I have any lesser reward. In fact, I find sometimes when I throw, because the dog sees that little motion, they're flipping their head away and they don't even see the reward. And then there's like no continuity. So I find that my timing is absolutely on point, completely on point, because I watch him like a hawk. And the second I get exactly what I want, boom, capture, yes, whistle, whatever. And he flies to me and I can shape that in and, and so I can't have bad timing when I'm throwing between aim and motion and the dog looking away for me personally, I couldn't do it. Effect- I could do it and they got Well, it, I've seen very few do precise. it effectively. We all have those, those, uh, aim issues or timing issues where versus when we use a audible signal, like you said, you can pinpoint a whole lot more effectively. And I think that's where sometimes, uh, debates come about is, um, you know, they think that when there's the argument or the stance that we like using a marker or secondary reinforcer or things like that, that means that we think everybody that does rewarding at source is wrong. It's not that gets, you're not, that's not the argument we're making. What we, that utilize this system, it's a evolutionary process. We found something thanks to research and information coming from the science community and other parts of the animal world. Dolphin that, trainers. Yes, that <laughs> there's efficiency to this. And then there's, and in that efficiency, one of the top things that we are able to eliminate is handler information. So the dog isn't looking for those informational cues from us that we might be getting ready with a toy or we might have this happening or, Hey, I, I, the dog smelled something of interest and the handler reacted because the handler went, Oh wait, my dog did something there that might be something. So I should get ready to reward the dog reads all of that. And within that split second, it says this where by using that audible signal, the dog learned that we did not provide information as far as cues through body language and things like that. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we, we had our conversation earlier, you know, other trainers can look at something and see that these dogs indications are horrible. They literally just run to something and they run away from it, coming back to the handler, or they're always focused at the handler because they're waiting for that handler to give the mark. And we've all seen dogs rewarded at source have very, you know, numerous problems. And at the end of the day, my, my statement is crappy training is crappy training. I don't care what you use. If you if your execution of that method is bad, I don't care whether you're a direct reward or indirect reward. It sucks. But you know the 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 point that we make is as we get better uh, and have more information as canine handlers and trainers, we see things that have efficiency and make or cre- help create more reliability from the dog. And this is just one of those tools that helps that it, it, it clearly shows when, you know, you're doing it the right way in the sequence that we're kind of talked about that the dog has a better, clear understanding of the task, go to odor, indicate, 
hold this position until I hear a signal. When I hear the signal, just like you said, the explosiveness, this is the Pavlovian response. It, the dog's like, whoa, yes, this is, I'm, I'm ready to go engage now. It, it really enhances some things there, and it's a great tool uh, to use. And and for me, I just want clarity. I want my dog to not really have to worry about or pay attention to what I might be doing. I want their focus to be on the search itself, not kind of on the search, look to me, back on the search, look to me. I want, hey, you're working until you either say there's nothing here or you've indicated, and then once you've indicated, you're going to, you know, obviously you're going to hear your signal, and then we're going to go do X, Y, or Z, depending on my dog and what that reward is. Well, well, for me, I have to say it sort of evolved because it was driven for me. It, yeah. was, it was driven out of a desire for me to have great distance from my dog and be able to effectively communicate to him without distracting him off, pulling him off, influence. So because we're doing odor, we're not talking odors. I mean, there's some pretty stinky stuff. And on a good wind day, you've got 150 yards or more, right? Depending upon what we're looking for. So for me, it's a little bit, I'm older, my knees busted. I don't need to walk around the trust miles. So I stand back, but it builds a beautiful independence in the dog and he trusts in it. And he absolutely cognitively under, I mean, it just clicked when I was doing it. He, it shaped in, in a matter of no, no time at all. And so that, that total focus and drive and, 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 you know, within the nose work community, there are those that will argue that a dog, oh no, it's too oppressive or it's bad. You should be able to read the dog. They shouldn't indicate. Well, I'm sorry. I'm a partner and I need to have clear communication with you. We have to have an understanding. So I'm not, do, I, I can tell when people do a passive compulsively. Mm-hmm. I can tell because that dog just sort of crumbles and sort of looks like, oh, crap. I'm, you know, they've been told down as opposed to shaped in through their drive. Like, what's it going to take? So I want my indication to be the what's it going to take indication. And if this is what it takes, this is what I'm given, as opposed to the sort of crumble, sort of oppressive thing, right? So I sort of waver on where is the balance between order means set as a compulsion versus a shaping. And I wonder if maybe there is some benefit in a little bit of the compulsion side as more of an obedience thing, as opposed to a a motivated choice Mm -hmm. thing. Um, Because I'm working right now, in particular, an extremely high drive dog, it doesn't seem to be a problem. Um, But maybe in a dog that isn't quite as motivated and strong, maybe you do have to do more of a compulsed response. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So there's always questions, right? There's always there's always a gray area depending on the dog. But I personally believe that I have a lightning clarity with him, mm-hmm. with the dogs that I'm working. And even the dogs on our team, we're all doing it. And and their their enthusiasm, their their indications are not just here it is, it is a demand pay attention to me. I am telling you something. You have a job and it's to get my toy and I'm waiting for you to get right. So that's what I expect in an indication. And when I can build that through shaping, through motivation and with clarity and no ambiguity as to what's right or wrong from any distance or any location, I get an independent worker who trusts that I will meet my end of the bargain. And I get a great consistency. I have to say, like I hear people struggling, oh, we're going to do train final response. I'm like, 
that's not even a consideration at this point. It's just not even a consideration for any of us because this is just, of course, they're going to do it. Now we're saying, how can we make it more complex? How can we make it inaccessible? How can we make it a more difficult thing for them? How can we contaminate the air such that they have to work through more? So our training goals are, are... long since gone about tfr that's kind of beginner stuff yeah yep no Um, for sure and and you know again we we both were saying earlier you know this period of time with detection no matter kind of what the realm is or what the venue that you do is in detection it's important um you know or or we're seeing is is a is an evolution you know, we are evolving. We are getting more information is at our hands. Uh, we are able to make adjustments now, sometimes faster. And then again, with the advent of social media, um, sometimes that's even harder because, you know, in one case, a lot of information is shared and it's readily accessible and everybody can read it and, and gain something from it. And at the same time, information is easily shared and readily accessible. Yeah. And people, yeah. and, and, and it's, uh, the bad things are out there just as much as the good things are. And for some people, it's hard to tell the difference. Well, and, and again, it takes a critical eye to see the nuance. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's always that group of people that are probably working the inappropriate dog yeah. that are looking for the magic pill. Yeah. And that never works either. And, and then, of course, there's the self-proclaimed experts yeah. that have a really yeah. good Instagram, that stuff. But I got to tell you, I think the internet is the greatest thing that ever happened to dog training, horse training. There is no excuse in my, again, in my opinion, there is no excuse to accept mediocrity when you can go and see what's good. You can see it time after time. You can see beautiful performance. And for me, I'm really visual. And when I was starting, I just kept looking for, oh my God, you can do that? Wow, how do I get there? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I'm always looking for the like, wow, if that's possible, I want to get there. If that's possible, I want to get there. So, you, there's, there, nobody can, nobody has the excuse of living in a vacuum anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, back when I started, uh, did not even own a computer. That's how long, I mean, last quarter sure. century has a lot transpired, yeah. <laughs> right? Now you and, can use your phone. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, when I started, you are you do become quote a victim of or a benefactor of the group that you start with. Oh yeah, that becomes your norm. Mm-hmm. So if you unfortunately end up either as a lone wolf trying to build your own box, or in a group that is not only accepting of mediocrity but more comfortable with mediocrity, it's 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 almost a threat if you want to go outside. It doesn't mean you grab for everything that's out there and then just make a cluster, but it's really so important to seek out. Um, like, like you mentioned, Scandinavian Working Dog Institute. Like, mm-hmm. that's a little bit different taste of this. Sure, it's beautiful. It is just beautiful. I, I look at it and I'm like, oh wow, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe my next dog, I'll be doing it sort of that way. I mean, I can rely. I know that what I do works. And I know it works very effectively, but I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's yeah. really cool, right? So I love that I can that I can look for these tidbits and these little components and I can see 
the evolution and the dog type, right? So they're yeah. working, you know, maybe it's a different dog type that that might work for. So I'm constantly trying to fill a bag of tricks, yeah. constantly. And that depth of knowledge, hopefully by now, I'm getting a pretty heavy piece of luggage going. Um, well, and, and we should always try to, you know, take something in no matter how long we keep doing this. You know, we should... Without a doubt, once you stop learning, it's not even worth it. It's no. just like whatever, boring. Then you're just churning through the motions and it's a bore. Yeah, and, and um, then you know, like you said, there's then there's the self-proclaimed experts and so forth. But so let me take the uh, I'll I'll take us toward towards our, our end here. Um, so I've been currently doing a survey right now uh, that I've posted on social media about basically um, the questions are you know what does training look like and what does your reality look like. And my question to you is how important, you know, once the dog team is trained, you know, they're, they're certified and they're done, how important, um, and, and maybe what information that you should, or what things that you should do that have or help training match your reality or match your mission. Yeah. And, and my response is, uh, people need to know that I'm also an electrical engineer. So I'm kind of a linear ones and zeros thinker. And I always overthink everything into an oblivion dark hole. But um, my answer to that becomes the type of exercise you're doing. And, and at the end of the day, how is the dog perceiving it? So does doing a blank mean I work my dog, there's nothing, I put him in the car? Does working a blank mean I'm working 160 acres. I worked the first 25. I give him a water break. I continue him. I give him a water break, and then he finds. So again, I, I would want it, which is difficult to do, but I would sort of want it defined somehow. And in fact, when you test under certain circumstances, they say, oh, well, you're blank is because you worked seven cars and six of them were blank. Mm-hmm. Is that in fact a blank? So how does one define a blank? True. And I, I think that definitely def- de- uh, depends on what like you said, what your operational aspect is. Because as we were talking before, I was kind of sharing with you some of the results thus far. And, you know, what we, the biggest gap what we see is training tends to be focused on, oh, I have to find something or my dog needs to find something. And then that same type of discipline, the reality is they don't find anything very often. And what, what I think we, of course, we both have seen uh, is when the training constantly has targets in it and reality does not, when tested, when teams are tested, the gap shows itself when handlers are really not proficient at understanding when their dogs are telling them there's nothing here because the only time they focused on learning that behavior was in training when there was odor present constantly or frequently. And when in the real world uh, or the real world search, I should say um, tends to have not a whole lot or zero odor target odor in it, there's this constant uh, interpretation or that bias that kicks in where we're like, well, so there was this in here and I saw that the tail wagged faster over there. And, and we were not as proficient when we had, when we especially when you're pressured, when you got the detective or you've got whoever they're going. So do we have something or we not have something? What's the story here? Well, even in your study, I mean, I, I read through it and, yeah. and it showed 
when not finding the handler started detailing more yeah. because we all have this fear of missing something. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think, and as a search and recovery, whatever you want to call it, if you're one in 10, that you find something one in 10, that's kind of over 25 years. That's been about, and it depends on if you're in a target rich environment. I mean, the, the border patrol guys are finding yeah. 50, hundred people at a time. So oh, yeah. they've got, you know, crazy numbers. So for them, it's different, but that's a very anomalous. And anybody who's living along the border, heck, they go out looking for one person, they find another. Sure. So if you're in a very target-rich environment, but the rest of us, as I pointed out, we're doing a lot of exclusionary searches. Mm-hmm. We're doing the, hey, I see birds in the field, go clear it. I see this, go clear it. It's, it's really about eliminating possible areas. So if you're 1 in 10 or 1 in 20 success, that's kind of about what I've sort of found the numbers to be. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I'm not going to do one in 20 positive searches in training. Of course, that's not going to correlate. It may correlate for the drug dog because they have such a high find rate. And and Um, I even will make the argument for the drug dog handlers because, like you said, they should almost do more blanks. Yeah, because it would validate (laughs) the real world indications that they're getting that are legitimate versus their training having 80, 90 percent hide rate. You know, every time they go out, every time they put up training, there's always odor out. And then the same thing's happening. So how do you really know? Yeah, I would I would definitely, as a drug dog handler, have my training uh, ratio be much lower. So that way, yeah. if I have a, let's say, a target-friendly environment where there's a, narcotics are found frequently, I can validate, go, look, I do training all the time. It's unknown to me, and there's hardly ever odor placed. But when there is, my dog indicates. And when there isn't, my dog train, does it properly and says nothing is here. And then obviously when I, uh, you know, hey, out of 10 traffic stops, seven typically yield in an indication where we find something. So yeah, I, I, as a drug dog handler, I would almost make my my uh, training scenarios have, doesn't have to be about odor all the time. I can constantly show that, hey, my dog does as it's trained and can properly tell me nothing is here. Well, and a way to maybe, I'm sort of thinking as you're saying this, a way to so you obviously can't bring your dog out and not find stuff and say that he's qualified sure. in training, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way to mitigate that is with high rep drills, mm-hmm. um, speed drills, short drills, uh, motivational drills. Mm-hmm. So that dog is getting auto response, getting auto response, getting auto response. Then you can take it out and say, okay, work the long. And, and mix it up such that he doesn't say, ah, now I didn't do a speed drill, so now I'm not going to find anything, yeah. right? Because they're wise to it. They're always oh, going to be wise to it. Like, And that's the same thing we talked about. You go to canine training, dogs are barking, they're all excited. You go out on your own. I, I actually had that with my first dog because I could only take him in the bureau car when I was going on a search. Mm-hmm. He gets in the bureau car. He's like, we're never going to find anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. They... So he came out a little lower. Uh-huh. You know, luckily he was hot for so I noticed that, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And and I mentioned to you my my good friend Steve Stoops. He wrote an article probably 25 years ago about the nose is always 10-8. Mm-hmm. So I do drills like that where I take my dog out, not on command, not in uniform, just take him out hiking, call him back, call him off of cows and moose and whatever else he comes around, mm-hmm. and just go for a hike with him, bring him up on odor after an hour or two. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh, it's there and I can respond. So, mm-hmm. you know, that whole area, is, I suppose you could call it all blank. Sure. He's not, but he's not searching. But then I see he has that very strong response. So it's always about 
balancing and switching. So I can't really say that I would have a number. Yeah, and no, if correct. I even look I through my log, I don't even think because my log doesn't do it as a ratio like that. Yeah. Um, I would maybe make a note. Hey, and, and recently I did this. I, I have sort of an area that has four quadrants. Mm-hmm. So the first quadrant and the dogs ran them back to back. But the first quadrant was decoy rotted meat and cheese in about three, four acres. Um, worked it through, made sure the dog was brought across that odor because I didn't just want to like go through and hope and say, well, he didn't get it. You know, I at, made sure he caught that odor and actually acknowledged it and then left it. Right. So mm-hmm. I saw him light up and I wanted to see the change of behavior that was of an anomalous odor in this basically pristine field. I wanted to see what it was different from the human. So he works that at the blank. I log it as such, but I don't put it in sort of my my chart of how I do stuff. Then I move him to the next area. And I, so I actually started him on a hot one, moved him to the messed up one and then ended him on a hot one Yeah. so that I was certain this is good. This is not, this is good. Mm-hmm. And then I actually ran him through that same scenario again. And it was way more solid, way more clear, bang, bang, bang. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot. I actually tend to repeat a lot too. Mm-hmm. Um, and incorporated. So I don't even know. Uh, again, statistics are are always based on how you count. <laughs> well, we, we and, and those of us that like data and things like that, and like you said, those of us that are more in the geeky side, and, and, and anybody in general, honestly, we're trying to validate, we got to be careful not to go number chasing, you know, yeah. or, or don't let numbers dictate our good training. You know, good training is good training. It, it, your training should be the purpose of validating what you do, what you what you do for real. And then at times making sure you match in training what, what you face in the real world. But in a way, you know, and, and, I'll, and I'll gladly steal what Steve says too: teach, train, then test. So often people want to go from teach to test, teach, to test. They, they forget to maintain the training aspect. And when you jump from teaching to testing, you're going to have problems. You're going to see these things and it's not fair because you didn't do the proper training. So training, you know, like when I go these groups is, Hey, look, if the dog is done, the dog knows order, you're certified, then your goal should be to push yourself to see where, you know, create the ability. If, the, if a mistake happens, you can address it and you can work on it and then go test again and then go back to, you know, building a good solid dog with, again, not only just training the dog, but then training the handler. To make sure training that they, is a slow incremental. Build. Yes, <laughs> it's not a jump around. Yes, it is, it's not from imprint to let's do it tomorrow. Exactly. So it's a slow incremental build that attacks various facets, yep. so that we're doing pattern, we're doing independence, we're doing indication, we're doing all these things. So I'm I'm a real fan of drills and then kind of yep. putting them together, um, and sort of and also even the group that I work with. Um, our goal is. Not to always beat them up. I give them ego problems all the time. Yeah. But let's find the hole. Yeah. Let's challenge and find the hole. And if we don't know quite why there was a failure, we'll try the various reasons why to discover what the failure was and to correct it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm not. I don't always want to set them up for failure, but it's we we look for. Oh wow, wait a second. That was more of a challenge than I thought it would be. Why? What I'm often finding is it's it's often not the dog it's often us 
I didn't oh. grit them tightly enough. If the dog gets odor, he nails it. Yeah. But if I didn't get him there, or maybe it, it wasn't the grid, you know, yeah, we, and we, the whole surface yeah. area of your aid, right? So if you have little, you got little itty bitty holes, you're working a five acre area. Well, I was expecting him to get it at 25 yards and he has to be within five feet. So that's not a dog error. No. That's, that's a, right. So we just kind of find these, <laughs> right. It's just, it's a, so I, I, I'm like, I often come back and say, yeah, the dogs aren't really the problem no. here. Um, this was a setup issue. So it's, um, but it's, it has to be viewed as a continuous journey. Correct. It has to be viewed. At, don't go out there and make yourself feel good. You can always give the dogs ego boosts to keep them on, to let them know you're, you're golden. But if your whole life is just about easy peasy, you will be forever disappointed in the field because the field, we, I think we'll all agree. Yeah. Boy, do you learn a lot? Cause it's hard oh, and, yeah. and you can't come out of the field success or not. Even when I did search warrants, I'm like, I didn't come out of there saying I crushed it. I came out and I'm saying, wow, I was lucky. I could have died that time. <laughs> right. You've got to look, you've got to look at your after action. I've started doing after action bullets after a bunch of our searches. Yeah. What I could have done better, what I learned. And this is 25 years after the fact. So maybe I'm a really slow, stupid learner, but I've literally started doing after action reports, um, sharing it with the group, just bullet points. What did we do well? What did we do badly? How can we mitigate this the next time around? And the unfortunate thing is we don't get a ton of searches and they're so variable in nature and like I said, we can't even really simulate what we're asking them to do. So yeah. we just have to try the best we can to offer that balance and variety and challenge and support each other. It's it's not the place. I don't think cadaver is the place people should be starting. I really don't. Mm -hmm. It's uh, I'm still I, literally I came two weeks ago. I'm like, I can't even do this anymore. It's so it drives me crazy. Yeah, no, you, crazy. you bring up a good point, which is the, you know, learn, you know, this is a very particular kind of thing and you need to get your experience, you know, possibly in other, you know, lie find or some other things first before you start going down a much more technical aspect, which is where HRD can take you. Yeah. It's, it's a rabbit hole for sure. Yeah. If you're going to be, and it does, and again, it's counterintuitive, you know, how many dogs come home with a head in their mouth, right? Yeah. It's just like, how yeah. hard can it be? Um, <laughs> But it, it is hard, right? When you're oh, yeah. getting odor at a mile away, how the heck do you work yourself back to it? And it's been cooking for 30 days. Yeah. It's been going up. It's been going down. It's been collecting here. It's been collecting there. It's it's really, really – and you don't quite know. I, I actually wanted to even create an app where I could plug in criteria mm -hmm. and say, what's my expectation of the body condition yeah. so that I know how to base my grid? Mm -hmm. Um it's like how do you, you know there's degree days and there's decomp i mean this is something that is studied ad nauseum in all these body farms because it's not immediately obvious so you know we have float charts and all things. those will tell you there's still so much we don't know incredible amounts we don't right. I, I just had i just came across something and it was something interior for six months and it did not look at all like i would have expected so there's so much variability mm -hmm. and there's so much lack of knowledge of, you know, what is the predator activity going to be? Um, how much is going to be left? Are they going to be mummified? Are they going to be bloated? It's really, there's a lot so that the handler has. It, the variables are unbelievable. Um, so maybe I make too much of it. I think I do. But um, <laughs> it's, it, it, 
any one of you us, know, again, and, like you said, we go down wormholes pretty, pretty easily here. So, you know, we, you're right. You know, those of us that get technical and nerdy and yeah, we'll, we will go down a deep end sometimes. At the end of the day, luckily the dogs are brilliant. They yes. just do their thing, right? They're an amazing <laughs> so tool. If, if we can catch up with them, yeah. we'll, we'll have it made. Exactly. Um, if we can learn to stay out of their way, we'll have it made, exactly. present a clear picture, give them all the context changes, let them grow incremental build and stay the heck out of their way and believe them when they tell you that's pretty much the best I can give you. <laughs> oh yeah. So coming up, you actually, so let, let listeners know you have an event coming up where you're going to be teaching. It's yourself, John Walker, Steve Waterburton, Don Trusty, and Bill Dotson are all getting together and you guys are having an event, right? Yes. Um, that's uh, Sedona, which is search dog organization, North America in Flagstaff. In October, I think there's still some slots open. Yeah, October it's 9th really to gonna... the 11th, correct? Thank you. Yep. I wasn't sure, but it's in my calendar. Yeah, <laughs> I um, got it right here for you. And we're hoping, of course, that COVID doesn't interfere. I yeah. had another one in May that had to be canceled. I've had a whole bunch of stuff Same canceled, here. and we're being super careful. Um, but it is going to focus on how do you approach from the time you pick up the call? Mm-hmm. What questions do you ask? Um how do you handle it? How do you behave in it? How do you document it? Um, and we're going to go through all of this and we're going to do scenario based things. It's, I, I will tell people we're going to train dogs, but it's really about the handlers. Yeah. There's kind of an expectation, you know, we'll help people with stuff if they have problems, but the expectation is you're already doing this stuff. Let's find your holes and Correct. plug them so that you don't get caught up. You don't want the defense attorney finding your holes. And, and you know, John Walker is a former judge and defense attorney. So he's going to be there to grill people, to look through their reports and say, oh, I own you on this statement, sure. right? So he, this is what we're trying to do is kind of expose the weaknesses when people are going to go to court. And then I'm doing another one in November. It's not crime scene necessarily, but it's with um, Southern California. And that'll be more of a functional dog training. You know, again, body pressure, uh, awareness, proprioception, Mm -hmm. um, how you influence, how you can influence in a positive way versus a negative way. Um, Are you putting stress on your dog? All that kind of stuff. So that's going to be much more. Initially, Sedona was going to be handler influence. Uh, and then this was going to be sort of the byproduct of that. So the one in, in Idlewild will, will be more of the, um, skills based. Sure. And, um, probably that will, of course, inc- I, I can't do it without getting on the handlers. Right. And, oh, yeah. and, and a lot of stuff with timing, you know, Oh yeah, Absolutely. a lot of stuff with timing. And, and I'll tease the audience too here. Uh, Sonia and I were talking earlier, we're going to do something together here as well. That'll be basically very similar to, I would say what Sedona is and, and her and I will, uh, put this together and get that out on social media. Again, obviously we have to kind of, uh, pace this based on, you know, COVID and everything else, but be on the lookout. We will host a class here in Las Vegas, uh, that'll be about HRD and uh, the aspects of preparing the handlers as well as con- as doing some training with the dog teams. So be on the look on that. Be on the lookout for that when uh, we start posting that as well. So how do people get a hold of you? What's the best way to reach you um, if they've got questions? Thanks to the podcast, or they want to reach out to you and have you come out to their area. Um, well, I I do run a dog training business, Sonia's Dog Training. Um, and that's Sonia with a J, um, Sonia's dog training.com. And that has, you know, 
nosework stuff and, and available for seminars. Um, and then I'm also doing a podcast, Canine Top Tales. I might be hitting you up, Cameron, Perfect. if you got some good stories. I would love to. I would love <laughs> Quid to. pro quo, dude. Yes. Um, so, um, so I've just started that. And, and it's really not this kind of a talk because you have this kind of a talk. Mine's really, I, I wanted it as a means for people to memorialize the great work that they do. There's so much great work out mm. there. And we're all sort of, we're all sort of, you know, people want to be humble and they don't want to be, you know, self-gratuitous or whatever. Well, these dogs are amazing. Oh, and and I think that, so I've got military and law enforcement and, and search and rescue and recovery and disaster and explosives. And so I really kind of just put down a list of like 30 names and categorized them and I'm trying to rotate them around and, and I'm trying to hit up handlers like Neville Sharp is, um, hoping to get him he's he said he's just having his 50th anniversary of his group that he started wow. in england and he did every 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 recovery on the lockerbie pan am crash so wow. he's a and i had wonderful opportunity to spend a couple of weekends um training with him and we've maintained a, a, a email relationship he's a lovely person and i just feel like to let that level of institutional knowledge, and of course he's in England, they trained on pigs. So just to kind of yeah. give him an opportunity to share um, his his story. So it's really much more focused on stories. But how can you tell stories of dogs without sort of some training stuff coming in? Oh yeah. So yeah. so that's kind of the goal of that's, it. We'll see if great. it evolves. I don't know. It's yeah, no, that's as awesome. As it needs to be. Um, and so just kind of doing, so I'll probably be hitting you up, I think. I would love to. I would love to. It'd be great. I, I think that's a great. Because you know we, you we and I have, can talk a lot. Oh, I know. We, we, the people don't know. We've been going on almost four hours now. And this oh and the podcast God. itself okay, is sorry. only uh, right now we're at an hour and 37 minutes on just the Uh-oh. recording part of it. So, so, but thank you so much for your time. I mean, uh, like I said, you, you came highly recommended from the audience. And of course, we've traveled the same circles. We had a lot of the same friends. So it was so nice to be able to uh, sit down and really get to talk to you and, and exchange our backgrounds and stories and experiences and the overlaps that we've had together. Um, and, and I really look forward to the future for, for that we both get to go do uh, coming up, working and collaborating together. So it'll be really fun. It'll be really fun to connect. I'm surprised we haven't yet. I know, really. I, I really, because <laughs> just because we've run so many of the close, uh, close circles. I mean, uh, I was surprised sometimes what the audience didn't get to hear. We had a story that she was dealing with the person, and then I saw the person literally days later. And uh, of course, we didn't cross paths ourselves, but that's how close it was at times, just days apart. So. But yeah, this would be great. Dog world is one degree of separation. Oh gosh, that, man. Right? We're talking about a small world, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much again. And to all the listeners, thank you for listening to Canine's Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. Thanks, Cameron.